Welcome into NBA Sound System. The last dance may be over, but we are moving forward just as the NBA did following Michael Jordan's retirement in 1998. We are here to talk all things lockout season, just how insanely weird of a year that is. Uh, some some sort of parallels to what's going on right now. Nobody really knows what basketball will look like if and when it does return, but we felt uh, the timing made some sense to just dive straight into the lockout uh, coming off the last dance. Uh, I am Mike Adams alongside here to do that with me today, Gil McGregor. Gil, what's up, man? Not too much, you know, just, just uh, really feeling enlightened after uh, learning all this stuff about the 98-99 lockout season. So uh, ready to talk about it. Let's do it. Also joining us today, Alex Novick. Alex, what's going on? What's up, guys? I just can't get enough 90s here. Trying to squeeze out the, the last bit of 90s that we possibly can. We're down to the final season, but we're going to savor it. I, I never I never thought that 2020 would feature an entire month of just uh, doing nothing but watching 90s games and reading about the 90s and talking about the 90s and listening to 90s players. Uh, but we are going to do more of the same today. Uh and so let's just jump right into uh, setting up sort of where we were entering uh, that 98-99 lockout. Of course, uh, the season does not start on time. Uh, there's a collective bargaining issues. They finally reach an agreement in January. Uh, a couple of big things that happened uh, coming out of the lockout. Uh, the introduction of max salaries. There's a new luxury tax put in. Uh, and, and a lot of kind of rules put in place to, to help sort of the 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 minimum the middle class if you will of the NBA but the league itself is just entirely different right like the defending champion Bulls completely disbanded Michael Jordan is retired Scottie Pippen's a Houston Rocket Dennis Rodman is waived uh, Steve Kerr is traded to San Antonio Luke Longley is traded to Phoenix all of that means that the Chicago Bulls coming back as defending champions are really thing are really nothing like your typical NBA uh, NBA champion uh, defending their throne. We enter that season with a wide open field. Seven teams between plus 300 and plus 500 to win the NBA title. The Lakers are the betting favorite, followed by the Jazz, the Spurs and Pacers, and then the Knicks, Heat, and Rockets. So really, nobody knew who was going to win the NBA title uh, entering that lockout shortened season. What are some of the other things that stuck out to you guys and, and kind of looking back at it and kind of setting up the scene for for what the NBA looked like in in uh, the winter of 99? I mean, just just looking at the lockout itself and the nature of it, you, you kind of touched on it a little bit. Um, you know, this labor dispute, this first real work stoppage in NBA history, it starts in July and doesn't end until the end of January. Like, I'm sure that the the attitude around everybody was like, are we even going to have a season at this point? I mean, thinking about the fact that it, that it went that long and, and honestly, you know, you had no idea what the season was going to look like. So it makes sense that there was that many favorites that it was that wide open because, I mean, like, how do you know uh, who's going to be ready to play? What teams are going to going to you know figure it out? And, and then the thing that I was thinking about to me is just crazy is imagine being a rookie or, or a guy who signed with a new team or got traded to a new team and you know you join this new team in the offseason in the summer and then you don't even get a chance to 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 actually formally play with them or meet them until you know the next year you know january and when you think you didn't aren't even have a season so i think that that made for a very interesting um environment going into the season that was bound to be weird from the start yeah it felt weird and and you Touched on a little bit how it was touch and go whether there was even going to be a season. I remember, I mean, I was I think I was fourteen, freshman in high school, but kind of the vibe was that there was not going to be a season for a while. I, I think everyone had kind of reached a point where they thought it wasn't going to happen. Um, so once it actually was announced, I remember like walking through the halls in high school, and, it, and somehow the news broke, and everyone was my friends, and a lot of people were just jumping up and down cheering that. There was actually going to be a season. It felt like a, like a rejuvenation, like we were throwing, like NBA fans were throwing a life preserver. So I remember everyone just being super excited to actually start the season. And there was, you know, there was a lot of strange complications around how it was going to play out, but there was great vibes that it was actually happening and people were pumped to get it going. Yeah, absolutely crazy kind of looking back on it. So there's a 12-day training camp 
uh, and free agency both began on the same day, on January 21st, leading up to an opening night on February 5th. Uh, The ambitious plan included playing 50 games in 90 days. Every team playing 50 games in three months. Back to back to backs. DMPs are uh, rests are like not really a thing. Uh, Teams having two a days uh, for like a week leading up to the start of the season to try to get guys back in shape. Of course, nobody came back in shape, which which led to some ugly basketball, which uh, we'll get into here in a little bit. But I, one of the other things that really caught my eye too is is you know we talked a little bit about um, the Bulls being an entirely new team, a lot of other big names uh, sort of changing changing places uh, in that offseason leading into ninety eight ninety nine. Uh, the Los Angeles Lakers really uh, went all in on making that a Kobe and Shaq team. Nick Van Exel signs with the Nuggets. Eddie Jones is traded to the Hornets for Glenn Rice. Uh, and uh, one of the things that I, I don't think I really realized either is, you know, you're kind of going back and looking at, like, w- what guys are in new places. The Nuggets had, like, this crazy offseason where they, they signed Nick Van Exel, they signed Antonio McDice, they trade for Chauncey Billups, and they hired Mike D'Antoni as their head coach. Yeah, I had no idea that they did all that. You know, when I was looking at, at the moves from that offseason, the one I felt was the biggest was um, Chris Webber going to Sacramento and then Marcus Canby getting traded to the Knicks, which is also really, really crazy to think as well. The the Raptors draft this guy, you know, top however many picks, and he and Damon Sotomayor were supposed to be the future of that franchise, and both of them are gone before even they finish their rookie contracts. But just thinking back to you know me and, and listening to kind of what you said, Alex, of where you were in life. I was, I was four years old, but I, I lived in in kind of drink, ate, slept, and slept, dreamed basketball at the time. So I, I was really into the sport. But all I can think about back to uh, with the Nuggets was that they were a laughing stock of the league. So to hear that they did all of those things to do to kind of become a winner, and, and I guess they weren't really as successful as a team because I think about them being lottery bound year after year after year. That's really surprising to me because I didn't realize that they had, that made those many moves to uh, to try and be a winner out, out in Denver. Yeah, and the one the one with uh, Antonio the the way that Antonio McDice gets to Denver is pretty crazy too. So he starts his career there, then goes play plays a year in Phoenix. Uh, so Nick Van Exel signs uh, with Denver. Uh, him and Antonio McDice are apparently uh, living in Houston at the same time during the lockout. Van Exel's dropping Krispy Kreme donuts off uh, at McDice's doorstep every day. Then uh, uh, all of a sudden, uh, Antonio McDice stops returning calls uh, from the Suns front office in, in turn, that leads Jason Kidd, Rex Chapman, and George McLeod at 4 o'clock in the morning decide to take the owner's plane, fly straight uh, to Denver from Phoenix, where it's 80 degrees. It There was a blizzard going on in Denver. They tried to track McDice down at a Colorado Avalanche game, but they didn't have tickets, so they couldn't get in. And, like, it's this whole thing unfolding uh, and it's, it like makes the DeAndre Jordan uh, situation between the Mavericks and Clippers from a couple years ago just look like absolutely nothing. It's just bonkers that all this is taking place. Two two things from that. One, I, I never would have taken Antonio McDice as a, as a hockey guy. So uh, that's, that's a big thing. <laughs> <laughs> the, the second thing, though. Um, you know, just imagine, you know, had, had we had social media during during these times, just following everything and, and like going back in the absurdity of these stories. And it makes you think kind of like the same thing watching The Last Dance. You know, these type of things have been going on in the NBA world forever. We just finally have a look into it. We finally have the twit pick of a chair blocking the door and stuff like that. But that's that story is nuts. That sounds like that could have happened like last offseason. Yeah, there's like a there's like a. Yeah, go ahead. My takeaway is they did all that, and they did they even make the playoffs with that team. I mean, it, it was all for for nothing, right? The Denver Nuggets that season uh, went on to finish fourteen and thirty six. Yes. Uh, they had the uh, they finished twelfth in the Western Conference, a solid eleven games out of eighth uh, in the West. So all of that, and then really just. Absolutely nothing to show for it uh, at all. One of the other, two of the other big uh, sort of things, or one of the other big moves leading into that season. I know we mentioned the Knicks trading for Marcus Camby. The Knicks also traded 
for Latrell Sprewell. So uh, gone from New York are longtime Knicks, John Starks and Charles Oakley. And then Gil, you're living in Charlotte at the time. Um, do you have any memory of Master P as a Charlotte Hornet? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I forgot that, that that was this year. That um, I remember, um, again, about four and a half. Uh, but I do remember the preseason game. He made a free throw. He like, that was like, like life was complete for him at that moment. He makes a free throw. He looks into the sky, like celebrating. He has his entire record label sitting in a section behind the bench. So I do remember a lot of this. They're like standing up, waving towels. I remember a timeout. He's standing on the bench, like not paying attention to anything going on in the huddle. It was, it was nuts. I, I don't, I didn't really put two and two together. Like I knew who Master P was enough just because he was one of the biggest artists in the world. And to see that he was on the team, I didn't really understand why it was weird. But I do remember that that was a, a huge moment. And he scored a preseason bucket and ended up playing with the Raptors down the road too. So I didn't even realize that was the same year. Yeah, so there's a, on January 23rd of 1999, uh, at the Charlotte Coliseum, they're apparently expecting 8,000 people. Instead, 15,000 people show up with fans starting to line up at 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh, everyone came out with Master P's, make him say, uh, playing over the loudspeakers. <laughs> uh, it, just a wild time. This is like the, the one of the biggest, this will be like the equivalent of Drake. Uh, in 1999, in 16 minutes, Master P scores nine points on three of six shooting. Uh, just all you need to know is the the absurdity of that year is that Master P uh, was out there actually playing in preseason games for the Hornets. That's ridiculous. That's honestly ridiculous. That's that's wild. I, I mean, I, it's hard to top that, but I honestly think these things are just as ridiculous, and they're things that actually happened, transactions that occurred in the offseason leading up into into that year. And Gil mentioned both of them, but let's just talk about Chris Webber, right? The Wizards trade, or sorry, I guess it was the Bullets, traded a 24-year-old Chris Webber coming up, coming off back-to-back seasons of 20 and 10, led him to the playoffs one of those years. Okay, this is a f- former number one pick. They trade him to the Kings for a 33-year-old Mitch Richmond and a 36-year-old Otis Thorpe. And this wasn't a, a Bullets team that was like on the doorstep of like winning anything and needed that extra piece. I mean, they traded Chris Webber to the Kings. The Kings instantly become a contender in the West, or they would eventually become a contender in the West, and the, and the Bullets just toil until Jordan comes. I mean, what were they thinking with that? And then you look at the, uh, the Raptors, who have a 23-year-old Marcus Camby coming off leading the league in blocks, two really good seasons after they drafted him second overall, and they trade him basically straight up to the Knicks for a 35-year-old Charles Oakley. I mean, what these like the, the way these teams are valuing young assets back then compared to today? It's it's insane. No picks exchange. Like what what are these teams thinking? I don't know. They 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 basically had they had a, a rookie Vince Carter. They already had Tracy McGrady, and they had Marcus Cambion. Somehow within twenty months, uh, Vince Carter's the only one still there, and I, that didn't make any sense. Yeah, that that's pretty nuts. And and even then, you, you look uh, the the NBA draft that year. Michael Oluwakandi was the number one overall pick, who's one of the <laughs> biggest misses, most would say, uh, with, with number one overall picks in history. And just just going through the draft, I mean, you know, it, it's hard to, to predict sometimes. But even the draft they trade uh, tractor trailer for for Dirk Nowitzki. Uh, you know, people probably not that many people know that that the Mavs that took took Tractor Trailer, Robert Tractor Trailer, and, and traded him uh, for Dirk, and then Paul Pierce falls to ten on, on draft night and, and falls behind. Like Ray Lafrance was went third in that draft. It was another big big move the Nuggets made. I know he was a big time player at Kansas, and they thought he'd probably be a, a better better pro than he ended up being. So just a lot of weird stuff. Maybe maybe they knew that the lockout was on the horizon with the weird stuff going on. So we got the Bulls completely disbanded. We have no real title favorite. We got Master P playing in the preseason. We got uh, Chris Webber on a new team, Latrell Sprewell on a new team. A 39-year-old Dominique Wilkins, who played the previous year in Italy, signs with the Orlando Magic. We got this crazy thing going on at, at, with a recruiting between uh, the Nuggets and Suns to see who can sign Antonio McDice. Uh and all these guys coming back, they're rushed. There's a 12-day training camp, and boom, we're right into the start of the regular season. And really, it's just like it's chaos from day one. There's a quote, you know, and I think that this is the, the perfect quote from the perfect person to kind of sum up uh, just generally where NBA players were. 
Antoine Walker says, quote, I wasn't in great shape. I wouldn't say I was in basketball shape. Yeah, was he ever? For Antoine Walker to say that. Yeah, exactly. For Antoine Walker to say that, that lets you know uh, truly truly where we were uh, at the time. So let's just kind of like, you know, talk about like the, the actual structure of the season itself. I know, Gil, you were looking a little bit closer into this just to just give people a sense for just how different it is. Because I think, you know, it's one thing to say 50 games in 90 days. It's another to actually look at what what that actually means and what that entails. Yeah, you know, it's wild. And you kind of touched on it a little bit. But I think the biggest thing of it is, is the fact that, te- that teams played back to back to backs. Like, I, I just just kind of understanding the difficulty that goes into, okay, playing, you know, whether it's 30, 35 minutes one night, getting on a plane, going to another city and and doing the same thing again less than 24 hours later. But then factor in another game. And I know teams probably only had one instance of doing that, but there's you got to figure out a way to cram in those 50 games in 90 days, which is ridiculous when you say it out loud. Um, and then on top of that, there's a lot that you have to to cut out. So I was kind of looking back and, and looking at the standings, looking at advanced picture on the standings. A lot of teams didn't play that season. So uh, the way it was set up, um, interconference games, so Eastern Conference teams played Western Conference opponents either five or six times and vice versa. So you're playing you know, the majority of your season over over 80% of your games, nearly 90% of your games, you're playing against teams in the same conference as you. And there are a bunch of teams that you're just not playing, generally speaking. So thinking about what that means, even even for as fans, you know, a lot of teams didn't get a chance to see, you know, if you're in the Eastern Conference and you, you don't get a chance to see the Lakers come to town or you're in the Western Conference, you don't get a chance to see uh, the Pacers or whoever was good in the Eastern Conference come in town. Um, I think that just makes for a kind of like just a weird thing because, Again, cutting cutting 32 games out of a season, and at the time there were 29 teams, you had to kind of be on your toes and figure out, you know, how to uh, make that make that work. And then again, um, they were pressed for time as it, as it got to the postseason. And I know we'll touch on that a little bit later too. But just looking at the way the schedule had to be uh, done is just kind of a marvel in itself. Yeah, the back to back to back thing is is wild, and the wild maybe the wildest part is that guys played every game. I mean, you look at what what it is today where guys won't even play back-to-backs. Patrick Ewing, all right, 33-year-old, Pat, or sorry, 36-year-old Patrick Ewing with bad knees at the end of his career for Knicks played in back-to-back-to-back games from March 20th to March 22nd. The second game he played 43 minutes. The third game he played 33 minutes. Could you imagine, like, any something like that even coming to fruition today, like, Kawhi Leonard won't even step on the court with back to after playing the night before. It's just like, I, the, I guess they didn't value players' health maybe as much. I don't know. It's just crazy that they let that happen. It's wild. So I'm, I, I'm looking at this right now. Um, would you guys care to guess how many players played in all 50 games? I feel like it'd be like a, a pretty a pretty solid amount. I'm a, I'm gonna I'm gonna go on a limb and say somewhere like. Like 30, 35. Alex? I was going to say like 100. Yeah, 83 different players <laughs> played at least 50 games. So that's including back-to-backs and back-to-back-to-backs and uh, just absolute uh, chaos. So let's let's dive into just some of the oddities from the actual season itself. Um, the, the first one that I have, I just want to start with, with opening opening night, February 5th. Uh, is on a Friday. Everyone's playing, and there's just three ridiculous things, uh, kind of in the same night to, that I think just sums up just that this season was so weird, and it couldn't have gotten off to a weirder start. So the Bulls and Jazz open up the season in Utah, NBA Finals rematch, if you will. But the Jazz are wearing black uniforms uh to show uh some sign of revenge so the bulls are wearing their home whites on the road in utah Carl malone gets booed for some reason uh in player introductions it's actually a close game uh so that that that's a really odd thing that happened in utah uh gil your your boys at home uh played in a 78 to 66 barn burner uh, against the 76ers in which neither team scored more than 35 points in the second half and on, on an entire slate of games in which uh, there are 28 teams in action, 
there are only three 30-point games uh, the entire time. And the leading scorer, uh, the M- top of the uh, NBA scoring list after one night, none other than Tony Kukoc, who scored 32. Wow. And that was uh, that might have been the best game Tony Kukoc had all season because... Yeah, he he, he actually, <laughs> he actually I shouldn't I shouldn't hate on him too bad because he, he put up decent numbers. I think he was like 18, 7, and 5 because he was the only guy on that team. But he shot pretty poorly. And I remember that Bulls team just struggled so badly, of course. And, and he was getting a lot of hate most of that season, a lot of criticism for not like stepping up as people thought he would. But I guess it started off well. Yeah, you talk about that Bulls team, and, and we talked about the turnover. that They, they return Randy Brown, Ron Harper, Kukoc, coach Rusty LaRue, shout out to Wake Forest, Dickie Simpkins, and Bill Winnington, and they're, and they're coached uh, by, by Fred Hoiberg. And it's just like, it, it's crazy because when you talked about defending champions not being like defending champions of past, I just immediately thought about when the Cavs, after LeBron left, the most recent time, were playing the Warriors, and it was just like, yeah, this just isn't like a, a real finals rematch. The team was completely gutted, depleted, and it was just kind of crazy to just think about you know going into that rebuilding thing kind of as it said at the end of the year but I, I remember reading about the the jazz uh, black uniform thing it's one of the interesting things I, I read from just some notes around that season a bunch of teams introduced alternate uniforms so maybe the 98-99 season was kind of like uh the year in which uh, sartorial choices became a, a bigger deal in the NBA. I think the Pacers <laughs> introduced their gold pinstripe uniforms and a few other teams had some uh, alternate uniforms they uh, introduced that year as well. Yeah, one other one other uh, quick footnote from uh, that opening night. The Clippers hosted the Suns uh, to a roaring, <sighs> ruckus crowd of 7,689. Uh, so the Clippers are hosting uh, games with fewer than 8,000 people in the stands, uh, which, I mean, the, the Clippers, had, uh, I believe, went on to go 9-41. and 41, So it's not like, you know, the Clippers were still the Clippers. But, man, that's, uh, that's rough. What, what other kind of oddities stick out to you guys from that season? Kind of on that same note, you talk about the Clippers. Uh, it's, it's, it's a weird thing. I think a part of it has to do with it should be the end of a century. But the Clippers are one of five teams to close the arena that year. Um, they the Staples Center opened the next season. Uh, the Clippers, so the Great Western Forum was was closing down that year. The Miami Arena closed down that year. Um, an interesting one also. The Raptors began playing at the building we now know as Scotiabank Arena, Air Canada Center, but they didn't start playing there until I think their fourth or fifth home game of the year. So they they started playing. The, the arena wasn't ready yet, so they they opened up and play at Maple Leaf Gardens, uh, which if you look up pictures of Maple Leaf Gardens, it does not look like an NBA building. Then they play a couple of games in the Sky Dome. Then on February 21st, um, 12 days after their home opener, they finally are able to move into the Air Canada Center. I remember uh, recently in Canada, they aired uh, the first game in the Air Canada Center. I was confused at why they played their first game in an arena on February 21st. So it's one of those things that could be like a trivia answer. You always look back and it's like, oh, yeah, they opened their new arena on February 21st. So I thought that was kind of a very interesting thing from that season as well. Um, and speaking of that Raptors team, uh, this is like a, a large season thing. It was it was. Vince Carter's rookie year, but looking at the stats, if you look back at, at D Brown's numbers that year, you would think that D Brown was playing this year. Um, D Brown made 135 threes in 49 games, and he led the league. He, he shot seven threes a game at a, at a 39% clip, made nearly three, three threes a game. And when I think D Brown, I think pumping his shoes up, winning the slam dunk contest in Charlotte in 91, but I had no idea that he turned himself into a three-point shooter at the volume of a player in the modern game. I was shocked when I saw that, too. The only thing I remember from D. Brown is, yeah, like you said, putting his uh, forearm over his over his eyes and then dunking to win the dunk contest. I, When I saw that he was shooting seven threes a game, you're right, I did think, is this, was this guy playing today? He did. I mean, he shot a decent percentage, 38.7%, but his field goal percentage for the season was under 38%. So I, I don't know uh, if that strategy was really working out for him with the Raptors. D Brown and, and shout out to uh, shout out to White Chocolate Jason Williams for uh, being second in the league that year in three point attempts uh, at over three hundred, also shooting thirty seven percent from the field, just like uh, just like D Brown. As a rookie, um, yeah, I, yeah, that's right, that's a rookie, rookie, <laughs> rookie White Chocolate. The uh, well, I, I th- look, I think it's a it's a good time to just mention just how bad the actual basketball was. You go back and you watch. 
Uh, go like like hear listen to any clips of guys talking about being out of shape or watch any of these actual games. Uh, teams around the league averaged uh, just 91.6 points per game. That was the lowest in the shot clock era, about five fewer than the previous years. Teams uh, on average shot 43%. That was the lowest in over 45 years. So like the quality of play, guys guys can you know years later talk about how they weren't in shape. But like the numbers completely back up everything about uh, about just the quality of play and and on teams on the third night of uh, of playing in a row or the a fourth game in five nights or fifth game in six nights or what you know whatever it is. But uh, just the actual basketball itself, just not not great in the in the spring of '99. Yeah, the one guy, and I feel bad just going going all out on him, but the one guy that sticks out in my mind of. That summarizes the not in shape mantra, and I don't think ever recovered is Sean Kemp, because you don't you don't think of Sean Kemp on the Cavs. You rarely see highlights of him on the Cavs, and this was his second year on the Cavs. And I remember everyone saying like, "Ooh, what happened to Sean Kemp in the offseason? Like, he did not look like the same guy. <laughs> he actually ended up putting up decent numbers that season, but I think he was he got lucky that it was only uh, fifty games long, and. The rest from from that year on, his career kind of took took a little bit of a, a sad nosedive. I mean, he was already getting to be thirty, so it was it's not like completely unnatural for a guy who throws on athleticism. But he was never really the same guy after that year. Yeah, I think that just again speaks to again like kind of we talked about. I'm I'm sure there were a number of guys who just thought that there there wasn't going to be a season, and then when it kind of came together quickly down at the end, they kind of. We're like, oh man, I need to, I need to figure this out. I need to get in shape, like you know, quickly. But that just speaks to how routinized these guys are, where they're used to having that off season from um, July to September, and then you know, you kind of use those two months to to get back into shape and figure things out. But instead, now you know, you have two weeks to do it, and then by the, that two month period, the season's pretty much over. So I think that's pretty reflect, pretty much re- reflected in numbers. And I think also, which we'll touch on a little bit, that kind of um, made the playoff picture as it was an incomplete picture um as they kind of made their way into the playoffs because teams were kind of hitting their mid-season stride when the season was over if that makes sense yeah absolutely and you know one of the teams that we're going to talk about here more at length uh is the spurs and the spurs had uh they're one of the teams that stuck out to me as having a crazy crazy regular season because i think it's easy to to now look back and say oh they finished with the best record in the league and they had Tim Duncan and almost won an MVP and David Robinson's still good and they win the title and everything. But uh, so we, you just, uh, Alex, you just talked about how like Sean Kemp came back and, and didn't, you know, look all that great. And Antoine Walker's talking about being out of shape. I was reading something. Apparently the Spurs had 12 different courts set up in churches and rec centers around San Antonio and all of the Spurs were just playing pickup the entire offseason together. Uh, so while all these other, I mean, that's like the least surprising team that would ever do that uh, in hindsight is San Antonio. So you th- you think of that, right? And then you flash, you you fast forward to that to them winning the title and finishing with the best record. The Spurs were they started the season six and eight. Okay, so they have a 15th game at Houston. Sean Elliott is on the record saying that if they lose that game at Houston, that Greg Popovich is going to get fired. Uh, there's rumors that Doc Rivers is going to be hired uh, to be the coach. Um, the story goes that they they roll in. They're outside of the arena in Houston. The coaches get off. Avery Johnson calls a players-only meeting on the spot on the bus saying, we got to win tonight. We got to save Pop's job. They go out. They roll Houston and they go 18 and two over their next 20 games, and the rest is history. The Spurs become the Spurs, but it's like one game in February of 1999. It all could have ended before any of it even started. That's pretty wild. Talk about a parallel universe. That that's very wild. Like just imagining, you know, how things would have been had had Doc been the coach there, and just like the the butterfly effect or domino effect that would have had elsewhere. But but just knowing that again, like. It's just crazy to think that even like you said, all that they did in the off season to play, it just makes it. It shows still that all you could do to get in shape, it, it, the games are just different, and and you, you know you hear guys kind of talk about everything now and and staying in shape, and it's very different. Just just uh, 
like a state of things with the workout culture and the way guys work out and do things in the offseason, but still you can't replicate game speed and all of that stuff. And, and uh, the Spurs kind of dug deep, and that's why the Spurs are the Spurs. Yeah, so the, the 99 season does not feature an all-star game, but there still is a trade deadline. Uh, they moved it to the middle of March. March 12th uh, is the trade deadline, and there's a monster blockbuster trade. Uh, there's a three-team trade in which Stefan Marbury uh, gets sent from Minnesota to New Jersey. Terrell Brandon uh, gets traded to Minnesota, and then Sam Cassell goes from the uh, goes from the Nets to the Bucks. There's a quote that uh, that David Falk has, who uh, Super Agent David Falk used to represent Michael Jordan. He was Stefan Marbury's agent, and Marbury is one of the guys that got really mad. Uh, that they, they put in the max contract in the CBA. And apparently Marbury was so mad that he wasn't going to be paid uh, like Kevin Garnett. And so Falk has a quote, says, quote, he couldn't deal with the fact that he wasn't going to make as, Kevin Gar- as much as Kevin Garnett because he thought he was better than Garnett. So uh, the rules of the CBA, uh, you know, makes it even crazy, just makes the dynamic between Marbury and Garnett kind of go off the rails a little bit. We get a vast... Massive blockbuster trade. I, I don't know about you guys. Like to me, I, I kind of Stefan Marbury and Kevin Garnett are one of those duos. Uh, not unlike Vince Carter and Tracy McGrady, where I always think back on like, man, what if? Because those two guys were just absolutely electric together. The the thing that I can't help but uh, think of when you bring up young Marbury and Garnett is the uh, the ESPN magazine commercial, which in no lifetime today that would be allowed to air by the way but uh if, if you're listening to this and you don't know what i'm talking about i'm not going to get into the specifics but go up and 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 look that up and and just think about it like imagine if that aired today uh anyway yeah those two guys were both studs at, at that time before marbury got traded he was uh they were talking about you know potential those teams being content ugh that team being contenders for the next five, 10 years. And then that fell apart real quick. But, and the, and then look what happened to Marbury's career. So Garnett got lucky there, to be honest. Yeah. That, that kind of reminds me just thinking of the names involved in that trade, just, just the strong guard play around the league, um, around, around those years, you know, you had Marbury, you had Iverson, Baron Davis, Steve Francis, Sam Cassell, like uh, Terrell Brandon, those guys were, were, were big time guards, you know, for their respective teams. Sam Cassell uh, helped lead, eventually helped lead the Bucks to the conference finals. Um, you know, Terrell Brandon and, and, um, and it ended up, Sam Cassell ended up going to Minnesota after that and going to conference finals with, there as well. But, um, I was thinking back to, you know, how Marbury was, was an all-star and how he had that big moment in the all-star game with Iverson and that comeback. That was one of the best all-star games ever. Um, that, that level of stardom he reached, uh, just you can't help but imagine what that would have looked like alongside KG had he not thought he was better than KG in his mind. Yeah, and that that Nets. I mean, we we I, I I totally agree, and it's it's probably not much of a surprise that uh, uh, of then it just never really worked in in uh, in New Jersey with there with the Nets and and Stephon Marbury either. And the, the Nets are another one of those teams, uh, not unlike the. Nuggets, where they kind of entered the season with a lot of high hopes. There's a Slam magazine cover entering the season that has uh, the Nets starting five on it, and it says like basically like uh, something along the lines of like champions by 2001 or something. They start three and 17. Uh, John Calipari Gosh. gets gets fired midway through the season. They trade Sam Cassell for stuff on Marbury. Uh, Jason Williams uh, signs a. 70 or 86 million dollar max deal uh just prior to gets punched in the face in their first game of the year against the Atlanta Hawks breaks a nose and is basically like he's basically just like out of the league uh I, that nets that nets team with Marbury and, and and everything really went off the rails uh kind of starting in that lockout season really from the moment he the moment he shows up there are stories about how Marbury and, and Calipari didn't get along because he got there, then immediately recognizes that uh, the coaching was a lot better in Minnesota. So I, I don't know, man. I, I'm like exhausted just thinking about all the crazy uh, shenanigans that happened in this in this year. Clearly, clearly one of those grass is not greener situations uh, for Starberry. And 
and it's crazy. I also think if you want to take it a step further, just the domino effect of that deal, he ends up getting traded in a deal for Jason Kidd down the line. So thinking about just how that, that would have never happened had that deal never happened. Had he not thought he was better than Kevin Garnett, then you might have never had those Nets teams go to the finals in the coming years because Jason Kidd was traded from uh, Phoenix to New Jersey. Yeah, shout out to Keith Van Horn, uh, by the way, who finished fifth in the league in scoring uh, that year. In his second season. In his, his sec, second yeah. year in the league. I, I, you know, look, looking, looking into that, it's crazy. I would have never guessed, as you told me before I did some research on this, that Keith Van Horn had a top five uh, season. Also, 21.8 points per game. So you would have never thought that 21.8 points per game would be in the top five. <laughs> that's like, <laughs> but, that's but, like barely top you know, 25 now. <laughs> right, right. Another, also another net, uh, Kendall Gill. Leads the league in steals per game, and on April 3rd, sets the NBA record, ties the NBA record for steals in a game with, with 11 steals. So despite the fact that Nets weren't very great, they, uh, they had some notable stats that year as well. So that, that game, glad you brought it up, he actually had a triple-double in that game. Because yeah, I think he had 15 points, 10 rebounds, 11 steals. And you know that's a wild number of steals. But you look at triple-doubles that year, there were 18 the entire season. Jason Kidd had seven of them. Okay, this year, this year, there's been 94. Luka has 14 alone. <laughs> okay, LeBron has 13. Jokic had 12. There was not a single 30-point triple-double the entire year. This year, there's already been 30. So, I mean, that's, that shows you how inflated the stats are now or how deflated they were back, back then. I don't know which, which, probably a little bit of both, but guys were not putting up big-time fantasy stats or triple-double numbers back then. Yeah, you talk about the scoring, and that was one thing I was surprised to find. Um, and I don't know if there if there's some some corroborating stats with this. If but I'm pretty sure I, I I computed everything correctly, but there were no 50 point scores that year. No nobody scored 50 in a game. I mean, I, and I get that 50 isn't like that hard to get, but you would think that somebody would do it at one point. The closest anybody got was was 46, and it was three guys. Grant Hill gets 46 uh, with with the Pistons. He's still with the Pistons. Iverson gets 46 and a loss to the Spurs. And again, like we talked about, it makes sense. Everybody was, was doing everything to get him. Antonio McDice was 46 points against the Vancouver Grizzlies. Um, and that's it. Those are three guys. And then after that, it was a couple other guys scored 40. But there were only, that entire season, there were only nine 40-point games, uh, 40 or more, which is kind of crazy to think that. I don't, I don't have the number for how many there have been this year, but I can guarantee you it's, it's been more than nine. Well, I think each of the each of the last three years, I believe we've set, or or maybe it was each of the the two previous years entering this year, we set a, an all time record for the most fifty point scores uh, in a single season ever, two straight years. So really, a stark contrast uh, from then to now, and really one that's not surprising given that Tony freaking Kukoc was the team's leading scorer or was the the league's leading scorer after uh, after one night. So we play fifty games in ninety days. Okay, we have this crazy sprint through the regular season. We show up to the doorstep of the playoffs. The Spurs and Jazz are tied for the best record in the league, followed by the Portland Trailblazers. Uh, so three teams in the West had a better record than any team in the East where there's a three-way tie atop, uh, atop between the Miami Heat, the Indiana Pacers, and weirdly enough, the Orlando Magic, who uh, somehow with Penny Hardaway on his last legs and really not much else they randomly go 33 and 17 that kind of speaks to you know you, you talk about if you take a snapshot of, of of any nba season 50 games in and you look like there's always that team who by 82 it kind of gets back to to bounce deviates back to the median or whatever i think the magic were definitely probably probably one of those teams um you know teams are like oh they had a and you can't really say it was an advantageous schedule because everybody kind of played each other in the Eastern Conference. But you get out to a hot start, you win a couple close games or whatever, you look and you're like, oh man, we're 16 games over 500. And typically when you're getting ready for All-Star weekend, it's nah, you're getting ready for the playoffs. So I think that, especially considering the personnel on their team, shout out to Daryl Armstrong, who was named most improved player and sixth man of the year the same season. Um, but again, not having that much outside of Penny, um, who again was on his last leg. It, it makes sense that their season ended the way it did. Yeah, you're you're right, Gil. That they they would have regressed pretty hard. Like I, I would be surprised if they even finished as a top four or five seed with this roster. I mean, Nick Anderson, the number two scorer, Daryl Armstrong, number three. No one, no one besides those three guys, those two guys in Penny averaged double figures for that team. They had Isaac Austin or Ike Austin starting. Bo Outlaw started some games for them. 
33-year-old Horace Grant. I mean, Penny was only averaging 16 a game then. He was he was playing, you know, he was a shell of himself. So yeah, how that team managed to tie for the best record in in the Eastern Conference is one of the one of the greatest unsolved mysteries of the nineties. I would and say. And surprising to see that Penny, from what we know about just his injury history, was one was one of the eighty couple eighty some guys who played all fifty games that year. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy to think. Shit. <laughs> Shout out one one last uh, one last shout out with Daryl Armstrong finishes fifteenth in MVP oh, voting, uh, got more MVP votes than Penny Hardaway, uh, and to finish right behind our, our Sabonis and Elijah Wan uh, in MVP voting. So great year for Daryl Armstrong. So probably that, not much of a surprise. They go ahead. I'm sorry, Mike. I just you're gonna love this. Isn't that higher than Reggie Miller ever finished in his career? It is higher than Reggie Miller ever finished in the 90s. He did end up coming back to finishing. (laughs) He he finished 13th uh, in the 99-2000 season was the the highest that that he... Because you're right. I I came close to just kind of wanting to throw Reggie Miller under the bus. But hey, you did it for me. Reggie Miller did not receive a single MVP vote that year. But his teammate Mark Jackson did. Uh, so once again, Reggie Miller, uh, no longer the best player on his own team, uh, in my opinion. But, <laughs> there you go. I so you for that. Let's just let let's just uh, let's dive into the first round right here. Uh, so we I we just talked about Orlando. Probably not much of a surprise. Uh, they bow out in the first round to Allen Iverson uh, and the Sixers. There's a bunch of sweeps. Uh, most notably, the best series by far is Knicks and Heat. Oh yeah, I mean. Everyone remembers the Knicks made that incredible run to the finals that year when they finished as an AC. They were they were another one of those teams, kind of the reverse of the Magic, where they started to put it all together towards the end of the season. Still finished as the AC, but they might have been a four or a five had this season been eighty two games. They they probably would pass that Magic team um, with Sprewell trying to gel with the rest of his new team. Um, and and you got to look at the, the one thing that I think everyone everyone remembers is that Heat number one seed, the juggernaut with Tim Hardaway and Alonzo Mourning. Tim Hardaway was pretty much finished at that point in his career. I mean, he was, you know, he made the All-Star team the year before. He was 32, but his numbers were fading fast. He barely shot 40% for the entire season. And I think in that Knicks series, he shot under 35%. I mean, he just, he basically shot the Heat out of that, any chance to win that series. Obviously, they were a shot away from winning it, but they really had no business losing, and Tim Hardaway, who's a guy who everyone remembers fondly for the Heat. I mean, he was he choked in that series, and was the reason they lost. Yeah, and in, in the fourth quarter of that game five, when Allen Houston hits the little leaner with less than a second left to to ultimately win by one, uh, Tim Hardaway is zero for one from the field in the fourth quarter uh, of that big game. By the way, which I didn't realize either, um, Terry Porter has a wide open three at the buzzer. Uh, that he almost makes goes off the back iron uh, in that game. Another thing that I found interesting that I never really knew: uh, the Heat were up twenty-one to eight in the first quarter of that game, uh, with like less than four minutes left in the first quarter. Somehow, uh, that's a tied game after the end of one, and the Knicks go on this crazy twenty-three to three run. Uh, just a, an absolutely insane uh, first round, first round series between the Knicks and the Heat. So yeah, Terry, you know, I, I, sorry. Go ahead, Gil. I was gonna say it's it's just kind of on top of that. When I think '90s basketball or '90s rivalries for the end of it, the 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 Knicks and Heat always come to mind. And I think that's another part of the the Knicks being able to. It's not your typical one eight matchup because it was a third of of four straight years that these two teams met in the playoffs. So there was so much familiarity with them. And again, it was it was essentially just a, a mid season series between these two teams. So it was really anyone's game. And I think also it speaks to you know the the five game format back then, which kind of gives a, a an upper hand to teams that are maybe of a lower seed and home court advantage doesn't matter as much. Yeah, I think you're right. The Knicks had, because of all that, the Knicks had complete confidence that they could win that series despite being an A seed. And Charlie Ward and Chris Childs must have had so much confidence as defenders in that series because I actually undersold what they did to Tim Hardaway. He shot 26.8% for the series, averaged nine <laughs> points a game. Nine points a game. And he played. Oh, no. He played every game. He played. He wasn't injured. I mean, this is a guy that made the All Star game the season before and averaged 17 points for the for the year. Nine points a game in that series. I mean, there's a reason Terry Porter took that last shot, which I thought was going in, by the way, at the time. But I mean, that, that guy. That's one of the worst series for for a star player in playoff history. 
He'd, he'd get absolutely smoked for that today. Probably did at the time. But anyways, we move on to the conference semifinals. Uh, three of the four series are sweeps uh, with the Spurs sweeping Shaq and Kobe, which in hindsight is incredibly impressive. Uh, the Knicks sweep the Hawks. The Pacers sweep the Sixers. Uh, and then Portland and Utah uh, have a really competitive six-game series. That sets up... Uh, you know, two pretty great conference finals uh, between the Spurs and Blazers and the yeah. Knicks um, and the one, Pacers. One thing to note from that, uh, three of those four Western Conference, fi- or conference final series, uh, the Spurs, even more impressive about that sweep, game three and game four were on back-to-back days. So on the twenty on May 22nd, they, they win in game three, then they close out the, the great Western form. That's the last game ever played there. Uh, they beat the Lakers on back-to-back days. Same thing, uh, that Portland-Utah uh, series had some back had back-to-backs as did the uh, Knicks-Hawks series, which I think is just crazy. I couldn't imagine seeing... I get the back-to-back-to-back. She had to fit it in for the regular season, but just seeing a back-to-back in the playoffs with how physical playoff basketball is and how we're typically, like, you know, like itching for games and on those off days, like, back-to-back playoff basketball, seeing that, it just... I had no idea that that was something that happened until I went back and looked at some of these series. That That is crazy, and I think uh, that might have been what... So it all comes first full circle here. So the back-to-back nights in the playoffs and the back-to-back-to-backs in the regular season, we brought up Patrick Ewing before. By the conference finals, Knicks Pacers, Ewing was done. He only could play two games that entire series because he, he was injured. And I'm sure, that, I'm sure that all caught up to him. But what that allowed for, again, full circle, Marcus Camby, the guy who was traded for 35-year-old Charles Oakley, to actually – Shine. It was basically his coming out party. Was that series? He averaged 14 points, 11 rebounds, three blocks, and two steals. 24 year old Camby did, and was a major reason why the Knicks were able to knock out the Pacers in six, along with the uh, the four point play game in, in game three, where Larry Johnson down three with uh, I think it was five or six seconds left, hit a three, got fouled on a phantom <laughs> foul, um, made the foul shot. Yeah. And then it, and the Knicks won. Um, small uh, side anecdote that probably no one really is going to care about, but I was supposed to go to that game with my dad. We had seen tickets, and I got in a fight with my dad beforehand, and had, at, as his punishment, despite him, I said I wasn't going to go to the game. So he took my You showed him. Oh, no. You showed him. <laughs> yeah, I really showed him. It was one of my biggest regrets. But anyway, back to things people care about with the NBA season. <laughs> Uh, really, really smart, really smart there. The Pacers, uh, by the way, had a lead. So the Knicks beat the Pacers uh, in six. The Pacers did, though, have a lead entering the fourth quarter of Game Five, uh, tied two-two. And look, we 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 can't we got to talk about the other series too because uh, you know it's it's a sweep. The Spurs sweep Portland, but that of course is is a game is a series made famous for Game Two, uh, the Memorial Day miracle with Sean Elliott uh, hits a three. Uh, they had not led the entire the entire game up until that point. It's crazy to look back at. I I just don't. Re- I also I know they played there for a long time. It's it it never stops being weird seeing uh, games in the Alamo Dome. The huge blue curtain, sort of. Yeah, the huge blue curtain behind there. Um, just kind of reliving that, and that that was a really good Portland team too. That's I know that they don't have Scottie Pippen yet, who's still in Houston, but. Uh, probably the deepest team in the league. Jermaine O'Neal uh, was the 11th man on that team. I know Jermaine O'Neal is is still just a just a young pup at that point, but Damon Stoudemire and and Sabonis and there's a that's a deep Portland team. Yeah, and that's it's a Portland team that eliminated the the Jazz and MVP Carl uh, Malone, which also another note. He, he, the year before, Michael Jordan won MVP a couple of months after turning 35. Well, Carl Malone won MVP a couple of months before turning 36. So he still, to this day, is the oldest MVP in league history that season. So you want to sprinkle that in as another odd thing that kind of stands out uh, from that year. So, again, it's a Portland team that, again, got past Utah, and then San Antonio seemingly made light work of them. Obviously, it wasn't easy. There were, there were close games, but a sweep is a sweep. So you, you brought up Utah, and I, I know we're about to get to the finals, but I got to bring up one of the, the little quirks that I had coming in. Greg Ostertag, okay? It's a guy that's thought of. <laughs> I mean, a 7'2", 280-pound guy, that's he's pretty much a punchline anytime you bring him up today. He was, you know, he was you saw him in the last dance, lumbering around. This was a guy though, he averaged 2.7 blocks per game that year in 98-99. Was fifth in the NBA. I mean, I think he deserves a little bit of credit for actually being a legitimate rim protector, a legitimate 
shot blocker and defender back then and played 28 minutes per game for a Jazz team that had the, was tied for the best record in the league. How many how many minutes would that guy play in today's game? Like per game under He wouldn't under, he wouldn't he wouldn't <laughs> be on a roster probably. Yeah, he right? wouldn't even be on a roster. So that's I mean that shows you how the game's changed and I mean 2.7 blocks would have led the NBA last season with a tie with Miles Turner. So that's just a weird little nugget to uh, to compare to the game today. But anyway, back to uh, yeah. back to the finals. It is kind of crazy though that like Greg Ostertag is this is a little bit of a punching bag, but like started on a Jazz team that had either the best or second best record of the year for three straight years, back to back finals appearances. Like easily could have been three straight finals. Easily really could have been four straight finals appearances because they they could have gotten there in in '96 too. But uh, but anyways, that's that's way too much Utah Jazz. Uh, the New York Knicks make it to the NBA Finals as an eight seed where they run into the buzzsaw that is the San Antonio Spurs. I think that this is really, I think, above all else. I know that Tim Duncan was a first-team All-NBA as a rookie. I know he was third in MVP voting uh, in the 98-99 season. But I feel like this NBA Finals series is where, like, Tim Duncan's arrival like really happens and manifests itself because you look at it now like he's just an an absolute wrecking ball uh, single-handedly destroying the Knicks uh, over five games here. Apparently Duncan years later is is still mad that they didn't sweep uh, that series. Uh, The Knicks uh, do steal game three uh, in in what's an eight-point game at the Garden, but Duncan goes for 27-14 and Averages 46 minutes a game uh, over the five games, which is is just something you don't see anymore even in the finals. Yeah, it's just crazy to think. Like Again, like you said, how, how good he was immediately. And, and he, was a, he was a four-year guy in school, so he, you know, he was pro-ready. Um, but just that he was in his second year dominating an NBA Finals series, albeit in a shortened season against the AC, who cares? It's the NBA Finals. The Knicks had to get there the same way the Spurs had to get there. Um, and, and it kind of just, you think about the larger discussion surrounding Tim Duncan, why, maybe because it wasn't flashy or, or whatever, but why he isn't mentioned in a lot of the talks as far as being, you know, ha- having the pedigree or having the resume of, of being so great. Because again, everything we talk about him doing is something you would expect from a five, six, seven year pro. This is his second season in the NBA and, and these guys win the title and, and, and the way they won the title. I think legitimizing the two sweeps, you know, uh, and then two, and they lost two games the entire postseason. I think that's that's really impressive. Yeah, the, the other thing is that he had to do that because I know this team. It's thought of as one of the great teams, and they won, you know, they won thirty or thirty four games heading into the ninety nine finals. But this was not a very good team, at least on paper, when you talk about just the talent level, because. You had Duncan only in the second season. You had David Robinson, who was not the same dominant player at age 33. He had he had slipped. I mean, he was, I think, maybe averaging 15 and 10 at that point in his career. Was not an all-star caliber player anymore. Aside from those two guys, yet a quartet of Avery Johnson, Mario Elie, Sean Elliott, and Jaron Jackson Sr. were their next, were their three through six. All guys on the wrong side of 30, not striking fear into anyone offensively. So... This wasn't a team loaded with talent, and if, if Duncan didn't put up the the unbelievable numbers that he did and just carry that team, they had no chance of even making the finals. So you are you are you of the opinion then that this San Antonio team is just not all that hot? Obviously, beyond beyond Duncan and Robinson. How many guess how many times they they broke the ninety point plateau between the Western Conference Finals and the Finals <laughs> in, in, the, in the nine games? Uh, it's you're you're asking for a reason, so it must be like two, twice, yeah, maybe two, even one. Yeah, I, I would have guessed. I would have guessed three. Twice. So right there, that's crazy. Two out of nine that's games, wild. they scored ninety points. I mean, they were the number one defensive team in the league. They had the top defensive rating, but they were middle of the road offensive team at best. That went long stretches without scoring, and I mean, the Knicks had no business even winning a game. In that series, but they they won a game and they lost by one point in Game Five. Not to spoil it for everyone, but uh, <laughs> the, the Knicks hung tough in that series, and the Knicks were significantly undermanned. I mean, Ewing didn't play the whole series, so it, that Spurs team was pretty beatable. Kind of, kind of the sign of, the sign of the times, though, right? Because I mean, the the year before Utah doesn't crack ninety in any of the six games, the Bulls only break ninety twice. I believe that that 97 finals was also very low scoring. So that's, I mean, it's, it's kind of, I I get what you're saying, but like, it's, it's also kind of a sign of the times, right? 
Yeah, I wish you didn't have to prove me wrong with data and historical context, but <laughs> that's fine. Oh, man. That's great. So, um, you know, Gil, I think one of the things that, that you just mentioned that I don't think that I ever really realized was the degree to which the Spurs just kind of rolled over ruled over everyone. Because I do think that uh, that people have a tendency maybe to look back at this 99 season and place a little bit of an asterisk uh, on the title just because of it happened to, and there's 50 games and there's back-to-backs in the playoffs and they played an eight seed and it... Not that it doesn't count, but kind of like it, it's not a real title. It's not the same thing. But I think that like the Spurs kind of like dominating the degree to which they did kind of you, you kind of have to give them a, a little bit of, of the benefit of the doubt. And I think also, um, you know, the fact that they would go on to win all those other championships, I think kind of takes, uh, you know, kind of you you don't necessarily think of the Spurs any less than you would say had the Knicks won the title or had the Pacers won the title or something like that. Yeah, 100%. You know, I think um, it makes it less fluky uh, to, to a certain extent to, to think that they went 15-2 and two that postseason. Like, they didn't leave much doubt that they were the best of all the teams that they, they encountered. Um, and, and I think that's the biggest thing, too. Um, going in and, I guess, sustaining that excellence – um, you know, winning four years later and then two years after that and, and winning five since then, people won't really look back at that um, as like, you know, oh, they got it in a shortened season, whatever, whatever. It's just they look at it as the establishment of the dynasty, which is crazy to think that, you know, one conversation on a bus in Houston, none of that could have ever happened, you know, to bring that to bring that full circle. Um, but I think another part of it might just be time. You know, you, you kind of talk about the times that we're in and people saying how or if if and when the season resumes, how would we view um, this title, but you know, over time, you know, we're we're 21 years past that that lockout season now, and you know, you had to go back and, and kind of refresh yourself on on the details of why things the way they were, were the way they were, and I think maybe just in time, you don't necessarily look back and, and look at things as as being, I guess, um, weakened by a lockout. I don't even look at the Heat's uh, title, the first title with LeBron, is coming in a lockout season. Granted, it was 16 more games played, but. I looked at it as a legitimate title. Granted, they did win the next year and went to the finals, you know, another time after that. But I think just over time, you don't really discount things. You just see titles for titles. Yeah. So look. Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to agree. I think people start lose fat, lose sight of the fact that a title is it, it fades in time. Like I, I don't. I agree with what you said. If people, if it was the Pacers, then people probably would have just written that off as an asterisk, but. Like you said, it's, it's the Spurs, and they validated it with with uh, several more. Yeah, the reason the reason I, I bring up the word asterisk is because I think now, as we kind of spend ahead and look forward to uh, basketball potentially returning and there and there being a postseason, and I think you know we we've spent the last hour talking about how crazy uh, and bizarre and wild this entire 1999 season is, and that includes. Uh, the NBA Finals themselves with an eight seed uh, somehow reaching there that that wasn't really your your typical eight seed as we talked about. But, um, you know, so if we don't view, are, are there any things that we can take from the lockout season of 1999 that then kind of applies to where we're going uh, over the next couple of months? Are there any like lessons that you take from 99 that help you kind of uh, frame the perspective around uh, what's going to unfold here when basketball returns. So I don't know if this is a lesson, but I, I think it is a little reminiscent of the nine. What this season could potentially be is reminiscent of the ninety-eight, ninety-nine season, where there was no favorite, like you talked about. The defending champs were a shell of what they were, and and one of the worst teams in the league. And it was kind of up in the air for who was going to take that crown, and, and it, a new team eventually did, and the start of a new dynasty. So the same thing's happening this year. No Warriors team to defend their title, and it's pretty much up in the air with who's going to take it. No one will be surprised if a team who is a five seed right now in the West won the, you know, ran the table and, and won it. So I think there's that's not a lesson, but it's there's some reminiscent factors there. Yeah, yeah, and I think. Um... 
it, it shows the value of, uh, you know, these guys, although a lot of them have been saying, you know, if we are to, to resume playing, we need our time to get back in shape. So I think talking about the quality of basketball, um, giving them a, a, a ample time. And obviously, I know there's still constraints that they have to, to stick within, but giving them ample time to 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 ensure the best quality of basketball, you know, because it, it would appear that we would not really have much time but to go straight to uh the playoffs and also shows the value of um having a seven game series in the first round because i do think um you know especially with the way the game is played now you know the right bottom seed gets hot you know we might be saying goodbye to to one of the you know top seeds in the east or west and and not really um seeing them make the run that you know in a lot of ways um it being different with them having played 65 to 70 games you know before the season was came, came to a halt but a lot of teams who, who were primed for a deep run could have that that taken from them just because a, a lower seed gets hot in, in a shorter series. I think that benefits teams, especially if you factor in the potential of not having home court advantage. Yeah, the, the two things that I think about the most are I, I think about just all of the unknown variables uh, that we'll now have. I mean, it, it's it's not even like. It's it's not even apples and oranges to compare 2020 to 1999. It's like apples and staplers because uh, it's not like there's two completely different things. But I do think like the idea of an eight seed reaching the finals is something that I think that you could look at this season and say like, I don't know, like would would you would you guys really be that stunned? I mean, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say like all 16 playoff teams have a chance to win the NBA title. But I do think it's probably, I don't know, I, is it 10? Is it 12? Like, is there a world in which Kevin Durant comes back and, and the Nets get hot and win the NBA title? Like, I don't know. I, I feel like it's more wide open, significantly more wide open uh, just due to that. And, and the fact that, like, we, we just talked about the Spurs that started 6-8. and eight. Uh, LeBron and the Heat one year, I, I believe they had a losing record uh, after 17 or 18 games. So, like... Especially if we come back, we only play three or four regular season games and get right into it. The combination of rust and just teams not humming, it's not a normal schedule. You get off to a bad start and like you you, you just might be one and done in a way that like you just wouldn't be under norm under normal circumstances. Yeah, for sure. You talk about like you mentioned the Kevin Durant example or or the Dallas Mavericks aren't your typical seventh seed and right now they're the seventh seed. You know, they they could be headaches for teams. And, you know, if you're playing a shorter series or even if it's a longer series, you know, a team gets hot for two games and the team they're playing against is cold for two games. That's all you need. You know what I mean? So um, the, the the door, it makes it makes the door like really kind of kind of wide open um, and it makes it very interesting, you know, for those teams. Uh, how they're going to click and, and, you know, three months is a long time to not play and, ha- you know, they're still going to be pre-existing chemistry with the familiarity of playing with somebody. But again, you know, it's not the the, the six or seven months that, that we had in 1999, but I mean, three months is a long time. Yeah. And so if you're done with lessons, uh, Michael, you said you had another one, but I wanted to, uh, I wanted to use the, the tie from, this season to 98-99 as, as a way to squeeze in one last weird fact about yeah about go for it. I know there's zero correlation in this, but I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna I'm gonna tie it all together. Don't worry. So <laughs> there's, there's zero correlation, but you're gonna force a correlation. Yeah, cool. yeah, exactly. That's what I do. So the rookie class of 98-99 we haven't too, talked too much about is pretty good rookie class. You had Vince Carter, Antoine Jameson, Rashard Lewis, Dirk Nowitzki, Paul Pierce. Uh, Peja was a rookie that year, even though he wasn't in that draft. Uh, Jason Williams, who talked about Larry Hughes, Coutinho Mobley. Can you guys guess, and obviously I'm setting this up for a ridiculous answer, who was number three in win shares among rookies that year? Win shares being uh, an estimate of the number of wins contributed by a player to his team. Can you guess number three? <laughs> Look at you reading off the glass. <laughs> I mean, hey, not everyone knows. I didn't even really know what it meant, but I had to look it up. Uh, Vince Carter was one. Ooh, third. So Vince Carter was one. Paul Pierce was two. Who was third? Give you each one guess. I'm going to go Mike Bibby. That's another good name, but that's not who it is. Ah. Man, if you said there's a parallel to the season, but I, have no, I'm, I don't know how it would be or, or who it would be. And I, I'm just going to go out and guess, like, I don't know, Reuben Patterson. Ooh. That's a good guess, but no. Neither of you, I would have given you guys 100 guesses. Neither of you would have gotten them. T- 
Tyrone Nesby. Exactly. No, uh, you both yeah, staring no at me. <laughs> Absolutely no shot. We're not going Tyrone. We're not going Tyrone Nesby. And no one would because he was an undrafted guy for the play for the Clippers. Had a good rookie season. Was out of the league in three years. Undrafted out of UNLV. Um, very strange name just to be thrown in there as a third best rookie, but but looked him up and, and there he was. And the tie to this year is that uh, the guys with the fourth most and fifth most win shares among rookies are also both undrafted. Uh, that's Terrence Davis at number four and Kendrick Nunn at number five. So hopefully they have better uh, and longer careers than Tyrone Nesby. But um, interesting that there's undrafted guys doing big things uh, that season and this season. That's, that's going to be bad news for Raptors fans if, uh, if that trajectory kind of holds true with Tyrone Nesby, right? Yeah, Terrence Davis has a brighter so future. There any, so as we, as we wrap up here looking back at the 98-99 lockout season, what if there's one big takeaway that either of you guys have or something that just really stuck out, uh, what would it be? I think uh, talking about that, that huge gap, uh, you just, you just, again, I think I kind of touched on it a little bit. You, you're going to, it's to be expected. There's a drop in quality uh, of play. Um, and I think, um, still all that, it was still a legitimate NBA season, uh, all things considered. And even, again, like it took me a while to jog the memory and look back to see all these weird things that happened. So over time, a season just becomes a season. And the more people, you know, get older that have memories of it, it, you know, it just stands in the history book as a season of 50 games, not a season that happened in 90 days. Yeah, I, I'm still – I'm going to have to go with the Orlando, Orlando Magic having tied for the thir- the number one seed in the East. I'm still amazed by that. How a team – I mean, I, I, and I think that shows – we already talked about it, but sh- shows you all you need to know about that season is that you didn't need a lot of talent to really finish near the top of the league that year because everything was so out of whack. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, I, I think it's, it's, uh, I mean, master P for me is, is by far the weirdest, <laughs> but that that's a promotional stunt. That's not actual, uh, basketball and, and what's going on. I, I think that the, the Knicks making the finals as an eight seed stands out to me just because I do think that there's a little bit of a, uh, not a sign of what's to come, but I just do think it is a nice reminder of just how wacky, uh, how wacky things can get when you just start throwing uh, all these all these random variables in the mix. Because I do think that we have as wide open uh, of a year, which we already kind of did, but I even thought, now think it's as wide open uh, as any year since probably the '99 Finals. There you go, Dallas Mavericks this year's New York Knicks. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully the season comes back and it should be a lot of fun if, if looking at 98-99 is any precursor. Yeah, it'll be unpredictable. Uh, well, one di- <laughs> it will be unpredictable. One predictable thing, uh, the Spurs, unlike 99, will not be winning the NBA title uh, in 2020. Uh, that's all we have today. Looking back at the crazy 50-game, the 90-day, 99-lockout season. For Gil McGregor and Alex Novick, I'm Mike Adams. Thanks for tuning in right here to NBA Sound System. Keep it locked and loaded. We'll be back with plenty more in the days and weeks ahead.